The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along podcast uh, for the Wheel of Time saga, ever so close to the final moments of book one, The Eye of the World. I, of course, am Greg, your host, who still knows surprisingly little about the Wheel of Time. And joining me is a man who recently complained to me on text message that he would normally have read all these weeks in one single night uh, as he closed in on the end of the book. That, of course, is our resident expert, Tyler. Tyler, how are you? I am doing very well, other than the fact that this should absolutely be one frantic evening instead of six (laughs) weeks of podcasts, but you do it at your own pace. Um, I hope everyone is getting into, if you are listening in the current moment, some sort of holiday spirit. If you're listening six months from now in July, good for you. Enjoy. Uh, It is festive where we are, and I am just getting in the mood to enjoy a good book and curl up by... Well, for me, it's a television. A fire would be much better, but I live in downtown (laughs) Boston. Um, So I'm just excited to finally be wrapping up this book. And as we were talking about, I think we're probably going to be recording quite a bit about the next one. So I'm excited to plow ahead quite a bit. Well, all of you have to wait until January to listen to the next (laughs) section. Uh, Any last thoughts before we dive into the chapter, Greg? No, uh, I was going to make a joke about how you were just getting ready to celebrate Avatar season and only go see Avatar over and over again over the holidays. But uh, I I think I missed my moment. And such is the way of water, my friend. Such is the way of water. Uh, Could you please take us into chapter 50 and 51? But let's start with chapter 50 as we continue into the eye of the world. Absolutely. So chapter 50, Meetings at the Eye, begins with the green man leading the group through his garden on the way to the eye of the world. Um, Initially, both Rand and Perrin are a little bit worried about the revelations from the green man at the end of the last chapter. Um, Rand, that he was called the child of the dragon, and Perrin, that he was referred to as a wolf brother. Um, And the green man kind of lets them pick flowers, and it's kind of a really nice moment of serenity where the girls and, and Moraine are kind of really excited about the moment, and they're asking a lot of questions of the green man about history. Um, and as they're kind of going through this, 
Rand swears to himself that he is going to protect Egwene, and then Matt asks whether he can see the Tree of Life. Um, and the green man, when Matt asks this, actually gives Rand an odd look, which we're going to have to talk about at least briefly, and then says the Tree of Life is not here. Um, the green man then explains what the Eye of the World is. It is apparently basically distilled, untainted Sidene, the male power uh, that was created created during the breaking of the world for some purpose in the future, possibly now. Um, we then see as they approach the eye of the world, uh, for the first time, I think our characters have seen it in world, the black and white cookie symbol is on the entrance to the door. Um, they make their way down, they go in and see it. Um, and Moraine explains that the eye of the world was made due to a foretelling of great need sometime in the future. Um, they then go outside and are confronted by two horrific uh beings they look aged beyond belief and they call themselves agonor and balthamel they say that they are forsaken they were bound for three thousand years and now they are here um they basically start attacking everyone with some sort of magic everything goes haywire uh lan gets uh knocked out by them uh rand barely stops Egwene from trying to be a hero and get in the middle of everything uh then the green man um, I actually can't say what I wrote in my notes because it would definitely get us an explicit label, Ooh. but he <laughs> messes stuff up. Um, he kills Belthamel uh, with a mushroom attack, um, but then is felled uh, by Agenor and a massive tree rises in his place. Um, at this point, Moraine starts battling Agenor with the power and Rand uh, distracts Agenor after Egwene tries to get his attention. And then he runs off up a hill into the next chapter. So sometimes I feel like we say action can get rid of conversation but when the action comes as out of nowhere as this did, we have to have at least something to say. So, Greg, I'm curious what your reaction was, because this is obviously not an expected course of events in this chapter. Yeah, I I think as a sign of how long we've been doing this, that is exactly the transition I was thinking of. It's like, okay, when he's done, I'm going to say we usually don't have a lot to talk about in Action Drafter. So uh, maybe that's a sign uh, we are reaching the end of our journey as well at the, the wellspring of the world here. Uh, man, so my enthusiasm, uh, as was clear last time we recorded, I immediately shut off my computer and I was still in COVID lockdown. So I grabbed the book and I kept reading. And this was just like mind blowing. And, I, and I'm not even sure I want to say like a like a positive or a negative mind blowing. It just was so different than where we've been and what had been going on. And that continues across both chapters. But, um, I, you know, I want to do our usual task of taking things mostly in order. But I will say the deeply chilling uh, moment for me was when our two strangers show up and Moraine just shouts or at least in my head shouts like, who are you? And yep. the fact that she had absolutely no clue was so unsettling to me that, um, you know, I think uh, to steal our, our analogy from all season, we've been saying she's playing three dimensional chess and this was the fourth dimension. It was totally outside her knowledge, yeah. her expectations. And for that reason, it was just uh, really upsetting. Uh, never mind all the action that followed. It was like I was off kilter from that 
that moment, which I have to believe is absolutely the intention of not just the chapter, but that particular line. Like, I think Robert Jordan really knew what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we're talking about unsettling moments in this chapter, I actually want to jump back to a moment that is not at all unsettling, but the image it brought to my mind somehow was. Um, I'm talking about the moment where the green man is passing out flowers and Egwene and Nynaeve have kind of our last really like peaceful, beautiful mm -hmm. moment before, um, you know, they go into the eye and then everything, you know, breaks down. Um, and what I wrote down in describing this was as I was reading this, it was peaceful, it was serene, and I couldn't think of anything but Midsommar. <laughs> oh, man, I I was just talking about that movie to somebody else. And they're like, should I check it out? I'm like, I don't know. I have not stopped thinking about it <laughs> since I, I watched it. And that's not a, an endorsement or it's just a fact, right? It is like, I cannot get some of the images of that movie out of my mind. Uh, yeah. And always, always fun to, to be in the Puniverse. Uh, but um, I think what came to mind for me is is that it, I, I can't even necessarily think of the exact comp, but you do get a lot of places using that kind of trope. I mean, an idyllic garden. We have to think of Eden, the 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 world tree is uh, no tree of life is what yep. is asked after, which which, you know, goes right to to that. But so often you get that kind of idyllic garden that is just at the center of everything and and somehow serene in all of that and you know even in this book i think it the royal garden scene felt a little like that where we had these kind of uh children that were at, somehow both at the center but removed and that's what this landscape feels like right it's it's very much at the center it's the whole thing we've been looking for but it is not the actual center it's it's just off from that um and you're right it's it's a moment of peace um, and we've we've talked a few times in this book about moments when our fellowship here is shattered. And this one just, you know, we said in the last chapters, it felt like partings were about to come. And then this just like not even just like we all are going in our separate ways. It's just a complete shattering of of the group um, in in an unsettling way. I think that's my word of the day. So it'll be unsettling. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this chapter is that it starts at such a, you know, like you're saying, it's a it's a moment that feels very kind of by the book trope, like every story has a moment towards the end where they find what feels like peace and feels like shelter and then it's shattered by whatever leads us into the next book, right? Like, mm. that's a thing that a lot of things have done. And like you're saying, the imagery works because we've seen it so many times. And then for Robert Jordan to do that and then immediately follow it up with not just, as you say, unsettling characters and unexpected situations, but also just like throwing the normal story structure out the book, right? Like, yeah. we're going to go on the top of a mountain for a battle for no reason with no transition, <laughs> right? Just George Lucas White, we're in the middle of a battle now. And I think that's a really interesting play to do right on top of this, like you're saying, very kind of not not trope isn't the right word, but an image that we've seen so many times, yeah. you know, it we're used to it. We are. And, you know, I think I just want to fold the green man into what you just said, too, uh, because that's a figure we've seen. You know, uh, he feels uh, Tom Bombadil, who uh, has come up before. He feels uh, very much like a kind of peaceful guardian. Um and uh, again, the feeling I got from him in this opening and then uh, transitioning into uh, when he uh, 
falls, it's like old gods, right? It's somebody who's an old power who was the this type of ruler. And his falling is just the sign that this power, the time of this power is over, right? Um, yeah. And and again, that's present in a lot of fantasy where we think about, okay, the, the passing of one age to another is means that what was powerful, what could hold dominion just is no longer effective. And um, while he is the only one to do significant damage and gets one of them, he falls and it has a great cost. And I think that's just a sign of how dangerous the other one is. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting to think of the green man as both kind of this uh, sign of, you know, kind of peace and serenity in the early part of the chapter. But then also, as you're saying, he kind of serves as this link to the deep time and deep history. And I think that's really interesting in light of what comes next in the chapter, right? Because we learn what the eye of the world is, we learn its purpose, and then we visit the eye of the world. And so there were two moments here that really jumped out at me as being interesting from that perspective of kind of deep time and thinking about links to the past, right? So um, first, I just wanted to get your thoughts about the eye of the world itself. Um, it's obviously, it's the name of the book. It's a thing we've been building towards, but we have had oh, zero yeah. information about it. <laughs> just being a jerk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Solid joke. I'm in. Um, so I'm curious what you thought, whether it lived up to the hype, whether your expectations were met or subverted in interesting ways. But then also, I think this is a very interesting moment that tied up in this kind of art artifact from the ancient time is the symbol that we have seen many times on maps and in chapter icons, but no, none of our characters have yet actually encountered that we have mm. seen. And so I was curious, A, whether you picked up on either of those things, and then B, how you kind of put those two ancient symbols or ancient objects in the context of the story as you understand it. Yeah, so you just experienced uh, my most dad joke of dad jokes, which is whenever I go to the movies with my wife and they say the title, I always like nudge her. I'm like, hey, that's the title of the movie. And uh, again, trying to stay spoiler free, I loved Glass Onion. They said Glass Onion like 20 times. And she's like, <laughs> that's enough, son. Like, like you need to stop. <laughs> like, not okay. Uh, so uh, so I brought that energy to this as well. So um, I'm going to also bridge from, from the green man there uh to note um as we're talking about deep time and this this eye of the world and how powerful it is i thought it was notable that the the green man said he was not created to be the guardian that is a role he was given and he references the creator and since we know a lot about who created the eye of the world it's then another question to me like okay is this another old god type figure somebody from before time before out of this or is this, you know, something related to what we'll learn uh, moving forward? The actual eye of the world, um, you know, and, and this is going to be a, a common theme that I say tonight. I had trouble picturing it, right? It, yeah. You know, it felt like it was uh, a room with a, a deep pool in it. And, you know, the the word you used in your your summary is, is distill. And, you know, being a middle-aged white dude, I've been to a distillery in the last five years because that's what we do, seeking spirits yeah. and good IPAs wherever we can find them. <laughs> uh, and I think that is very much the spirit of what I felt like, you know, there was a great sacrifice. We are told it was hundreds of male Aes Sedai who died in the forging of this, this place. Um, and it is, it, it does feel like the, 
the the nuclear option right it, like a weapon of such such great potency that it was meant to be never used but created because they knew they were going to have to use it yeah. um if i have this right it is the sidin and the uh, female side is sidar uh sidar is correct uh just okay. pronunciation sidin sidin okay so the the sidin is so so we now know that the black and white cookie is not a black and white cookie. Dang it. Uh, but it is uh, the representation of the true power. And Correct. the true power has these two halves, the Sidene and the Sidar. And as I understand it, this creation of this concentrated Sidar was in many ways kind of the end of the male half of that power, right? It It kind of occurs when the the male the male side becomes corrupted or around yes. the same time and so that the male Aes Sedai uh, go mad and and you know uh, all that we've learned about them over the course of this book uh, I'm not necessarily saying those are one cause the other right correlation not causation yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> speaking that economic language for you go ahead <laughs> uh, we do know uh, I think it's mentioned somewhere in this discussion or maybe in a previous chapter um, that the eye of the world was created after the beginning of the breaking so okay. um, these were men who were doomed to go mad who were working mm. with women to basically get some version of the power that was not tainted so it, it was at least chronologically after well, and, and so, uh, you know, that's what I've picked up from lore and I'll let you fill in what's what's missing. But I will say in terms of picturing it, I ended up kind of uh, thinking about the Pensieve from Harry Potter, um, which is the bowl Dumbledore keeps his memories in and uh, kind of having that kind of liquid in my mind, something that is a little smoky, a little supernatural uh, in its pooling, um, but scaled up large like a pool they could swim in essentially yeah. it felt like um and and there were they were kind of drawn to it but uh, the last thing i'll say uh, before passing off is it then surprised me like they didn't chill there or start to use it they almost immediately got out of the center of the room they kind of just went all the way in to see it and then passed back outward leading to the fight but what did i miss um, so I don't think you missed a whole lot, honestly. You you got all of the big points. Um, a couple of things that I also want to note. Um, first, when you were talking about what I will just continue to call the black and white cookie until we have a better name <laughs> for it, um, you referred to it as a representation of Sidar and Sidine. That's absolutely correct. I believe it is also either in this chapter or uh, the previous one referred to as the ancient symbol of the Aes Sedai. So mm. um, the like, you know, in the old time before the breaking, that was the symbol that represented Aes Sedai. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me when you were talking about uh, the eye um, is the fact that Moraine doesn't just say this was created because they knew it might be needed sometime in the future. She says that they knew it was going to be needed because of a foretelling. And I think this is useful information for us for two reasons. One is because it's just interesting to know the eye of the world. Something was foretold that would need the eye. And so we want to maybe be curious about what that is. But two, I believe there was a moment earlier in the book where Elida had a foretelling. And we kind of had a moment where we were like, is this true? Is it guaranteed to be a fact? And it wasn't entirely clear. Now Moraine seems to be saying we know for a fact 
foretellings are true. And so that is at least new world building information we may not have had so far. This is a concept of someone being able to tell the future and it is believed to be a kind of like true fact about the world once it is foretold. Interesting. And and I'm fitting that into what we know about the pattern, right? And the pattern kind of works on that same assumption, right? It's it's not always recited as a or referred to as a foretelling, but what else would the pattern be? Um, and then that naturally makes me put the Taverin in the discussion. And then it's like, okay, so can you we know the Taverin bend the pattern. Is that possible to foretell how they bend the pattern or are they the wild card in the mix of the foretelling? Um, I'm imagining that that's not entirely clear to us, although we do know that Min could foretell what was happening to these characters, despite the fact that we learned later they were mostly Taverin. I want to be super careful. Okay. Min is not necessarily foretelling. I think it would be reasonable to assume that she has a similar power, but the mm. only foretelling we have seen has been an Aes Sedai doing something Aes Sedai-ish. So just to be careful with- To be very careful with the word foretelling, in yes, other words, that exactly. that has a particular meaning in this mythology. Yes, exactly. Um, last thing I wanted to mention while we're kind of in the room with the eye of the world is Rand, maybe other characters were also reacting the same way and Rand doesn't notice it, but Rand's reaction upon seeing the eye is to want to get as far from it as he possibly can, right? He mm. describes, uh, like pushing himself up against the wall when they start walking out of the room. He describes himself as wanting to run, except he would run into whoever was in front of him on the stairs. Rand has like a visceral reaction to the eye. I was curious um, how much um, that kind of colored your reading of the eye as either positive or negative, and also what you think of possibly Rand being the only one who seems to have had this reaction. It felt to me like Rand's reaction was one of temptation, um, for lack of a better term, that it what frightened him or unnerved him, unsettled him. Sorry, I forgot what word I was working on tonight. Unsettled him about being in the room with the eye was what he could do with that power, that the the seeing of the power frightened him. And, you know, uh I think some of the best heroes in myth, that's what defines being a hero is a villain would grab the power and do whatever they could with it immediately. Whereas um, a hero doesn't want to wield the power, will wield it if they have to, but doesn't want to. And, you know, thinking of how the next two chapters or this chapter and the next go, that feels very similar to it. Like what we see, right. That he, doesn't want to fight and doesn't want to kind of go nuts, go berserk uh, in true Wolverine fashion, berserker, uh, but uh, will when pushed yeah. uh, and and will exercise his power to the uh, largest extent we've ever seen. So I think that's kind of how I defined his reaction. And um, I did uh, think of him as being separate from the rest in their reaction. And I just totally read that as that's because he's the chosen one quote unquote or or what have you the rest don't feel that way because they could it they could do stuff with the power but they couldn't do what he could do with the powers is where my mind was 
Yeah, and that's really interesting, especially in light of the next characters that we obviously have to be discussing chronologically, the introduction of Agenor and Balthamel. And in particular, Agenor is interesting. I want to uh, kind of put a pause on this, but we should uh, compare Rand's reaction to the eye and what you're talking about with the hero's journey to Agenor in the next chapter, talking about power and how he is approaching his reaction to Rand. So let's talk about this in five <laughs> minutes as I tell my students. Um, before we do, though, I want to jump into these two characters, shriveled, horrifying, and clearly completely unexpected. Um, and I actually want to note here just a quick thing. We've heard these names before. Um, in oh. prior chapters, Moraine has been listing the names of horrible creatures from the past, the Forsaken. She's listed Ishamel, she's listed Lanfear, and both Agenor and Balthamel have been on those lists. But other than hmm. that, I don't think anyone expects this twist at this point. What was your reaction to these two characters seemingly appearing out of thin air? Although we do at least get the deus ex machina explained. They were following Matt Stagger. Yeah. Um, uh, first, shriveled, horrified, and unexpected should be our tagline for uh, us as hosts of <laughs> Through the Glass Columns. Shriveled, horrified, and unexpected. Um, uh, yes. So I think, you know, my initial response is, is continued to be the largest emotion I have, which is like, oh, expletive. These weren't expected. These are not a part of the pattern. They are outside the pattern. And that means they are powerful and there is uh something else as a part of that now to to pick up on the second part of what you said i think it was interesting to me that i i immediately like okay they've been tasked by Baalzaman, like they've they're like his top lieutenants tracking him down and so that was very surprising that robert jordan so quickly kind of dispelled all that and yep. made them very much an accident um and i obviously not an accident but uh to me that is another example of being a taverin right is that if you are taverin you warp the pattern matt's actions warped the pattern in this really terrible moment back in the the shadow city and that has brought in this force um seemingly from outside the primary conflict yeah. and yet this is the perhaps what's going to spell doom and the the since you mentioned the hero's journey what you know the the cliche in in the hero's journey is the hero picks up you know the little trinket or bobble that seems unimportant and it's what saves their life and this is almost exactly the inverse of that in this really kind of delicious way yeah. that it's like oh the one thing that you're expecting they usually find that thing that saves them you know the one i always think about is how many um westerns onward it's like the character picks up the bible and puts it in their chest pocket and it stops the bullet like yeah. come on we're, we're done with that we're done with that trope uh but it's it's exactly that but the opposite it's like bringing the dagger along was the one fatal mistake you made while you were running and fearful of everything. This is the thing that undid all you've worked to achieve. Uh, you are not following this chain back far enough. Oh no. Okay. Uh, why are our characters at the eye of the world? Because they, because, because want <laughs> said that he wanted to take the eye of the world, and because two separate Aiel decades ago talked to the traveling people and Ogier and warned them about an attack on the world. 
Okay. They were warning them about the attack that wouldn't have happened if Matt hadn't brought the bag. Ah, so they brought that's about how, the... That's how Taviran works, right? Yeah. It, it foretells warnings that won't happen unless the Taviran is there. That's... It's- and classic this book classic mythology then right that that in trying to avoid the coming of the prophecy you create the coming of the prophecy all right all right so now so now um with that in mind i still say the beauty of it it remains in how unexpected that is and you know when i am as the novice trying to understand what is it that gets crazy people to get tattoos of these books or live their life reading them over and over again? I think uh, I'm starting to see it, right? I'm starting to see that it is the the Swiss watch craftsmanship of it as well as just the the pure emotion of it. Yeah, and I think that's what Robert Jordan does really well in this chapter and then the next one, right? Is he gives you these really interesting reveals and these really interesting lore dumps but in between it are these beautiful moments like the girls putting the flowers in their hair or Rand promising himself that he is going to protect Egwene. And I think that those are the little character moments that that really make this sing. And I know you already mentioned this earlier, but we're getting towards the end of this chapter. And I just have to say how beautiful the green man's death scene is, right? Mm. That uh, the tree emerging from from where he was killed. Oh, it's just it's beautifully written. I bravo Robert Jordan. And just a beautiful mix of familiar, like I said, an old god, like a a druid god type thing, but also not anything I've ever seen, right? Like I've never seen a a forest guardian killed in that way and the tree sprouting up like you're describing. So uh, really original in that. Uh, So, okay. Yeah, go for it. You oh, first. I was just going to say, I had the same reaction when uh, there was like the mushroom attack by the green man. The only thing that came to my mind as being similar was a character on Critical Role. And I was like, wait, that was from like 2018. It definitely, <laughs> the inspiration goes the other direction. So uh, actually, yeah. I, I just had that too. I'm reading a great new uh, book, um, N.K. Jemison's The City We We Became. And I was like, oh, this is, oh, wait, no, I have it entirely backwards. So um, let me just breeze down my notes i'm sure we could talk through action but uh land goes down very fast Nynaeve gets taken out immediately following that then the green man seemingly dies dies like like no coming back but does uh killing balthamel so again hey here are these two spoilers that are ruining everything and you didn't expect them oh just kidding i'll kill one of them off yeah, right like yeah no like that that kind of ping-ponging again uh that they do that feels uh, like a D thing right like the dm realizes that two of the people in the group are sick this week so one of the villains <laughs> dies right away and then we can continue with the fight yeah. um and then just ran creating the method for Egwene to to run and that's kind of the basic plotting i took out of the fight as it fell into pieces and that is exactly correct. I have nothing else to say about this battle. It's a decently written fight scene. Good job. Uh, anything else you wanted to pull out at the end of the chapter? Uh, agreed, but also it was a reminder why I was totally cool with him skipping a lot of battles before yeah. this, right? Like, it it is a funny thing, and, and we've said it before. What you want in a fantasy movie, you actually don't care about when you're reading a fantasy book a lot of times because it's just so hard to capture action. But but the best action we've seen in the book uh, in terms of it's written, but I still was like, all right, just tell me who punched who, who's, who's out. I mean, I wanted what I just read you from my notes, which is who's out and who keeps fighting. So uh, push on. Take us into chapter uh, 51, Against the Shadow. 
Uh, yes. So in this chapter, Rand is fleeing uphill. Uh, he races his way up. And I just thought that there was a moment. It's literally the way uh, he Robert Jordan writes it is Moraine had stopped screaming. Complete sentence. Yeah. Uh, that's the only update we get on her status in this chapter. Uh, once Rand reaches the top of the hill, he realizes that he is at a sheer cliffside. He has nowhere to go. And suddenly Agenor is behind him. And Agenor begins basically talking about how he could take Rand in alive or dead. But if he takes him in alive, he has to share power. So he's planning to kill Rand. Um, at this point, Rand sees that there is like a cord or a thread connecting Agenor to something far off in the distance. Uh, Agenor continues talking. Um, and then after a moment, the description is neither of them moved, but they fought. And then suddenly they are battling, I guess, in their brains and then suddenly the description is the word away exclamation point and rand is on a hill in the middle of a battlefield it becomes clear that he is in the middle of a battle between the shinarans and some trollocs and fades and drag car and it becomes obvious fairly quickly that the shinarans are losing this battle that they are preparing for what appears to be their final charge and as that charge begins rand begins to uh, feel kind of like he almost describes it as a heat in his body and then lightning begins striking and killing the drag car and then he screams and a wall of fire kills a bunch of fades and then he pounds his fists on the ground and there are earthquakes that kill a bunch of the Trollocs um, and he starts to realize that he is in the middle of a battlefield and the Shinarans are charging and so he begins running up the kind of hill or mountain that he's on and then there's a door he goes through the door and he is in the room from his dreams where he has confronted Baelzaman so many times. Uh, Baelzaman is still there. They have a brief conversation about how it's the same it's always been and all of the things Baelzaman has always said. And then suddenly Rand has a sword made of light and uses it to cut the large black cord connecting Baelzaman to something. And then he's in pain and the chapter ends. That was a really weird summary because there is <laughs> no connective tissue in this chapter. I'm curious what you made of it. I will say, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, I have distinct memories of being probably 12 or 13 and reading this chapter for the first time and being completely baffled. So mm. uh, you as an adult probably did better than I did as a preteen, <laughs> but I'm curious your reaction to this chapter. Mm, that's that's probably still up for debate. Um I guess tonight is not a Lord of the Rings night. It's a Harry Potter night. Cause I will say the, the experience that came to mind is uh, the very first time I read the end of the fourth Harry Potter book um, yeah. when um, spoilers, I guess, do we have to worry about that at this point? Um, but when Voldemort returns and Harry and Voldemort have a confrontation, their wands do priori incantatum. And there's a lot of this kind of similar description about a, a kind of cage of light around them and ghosts yeah. coming out. And it's very confusing. And my experience reading that book is I, um, I worked uh, at a convenience store, like, 10 minutes from my house and I was like desperately trying to finish before my shift. And so I actually took the book with me into my car and drove to work and sat in the parking lot for like every spare minute till I could walk in. And it was 
in that kind of context that it got more and more confusing because I'm like, I'm reading something I don't understand and doing this. So uh, to to go away from preteen Greg, although I, I think I was like a full 18 when that came out. I was full teen by the time Harry Potter was coming out. Um, the experience I had was that I was so excited to read this. I'm reading the chapter and as I'm reading it, you know, I kind of naturally rush through and I am bouncing to my notebook to take notes. And then I, I actually said, no, I need to stop taking notes. And I went and I just read it to try to capture all of the meaning and then um, did what I could and then went back and took, took notes after. So, so definitely similar confusion. Um, and it, it, in both the case of Harry Potter and this, I would say it's not that it's so different or so strange, but it is a very visual set of events and it's very complicated to try to read those and get the right picture in your head when it's so foreign. Yeah. And I think this is definitely the prime example in this book of Robert Jordan showing I'm us sure Rand's confusion by Sorry, I hit my watch since <laughs> so Siri wanted in on whatever you were saying. <laughs> uh, Siri, the third host. Excellent idea. Uh, uh, no, but I think that this is Robert Jordan doing that thing he's done a few times in this book where Rand doesn't know something and so Rand doesn't observe it, right? And so mm. I think part of what's going on here is Rand clearly doesn't understand and isn't fully in control of himself in this chapter, right? Things are going on that clearly he doesn't comprehend and so when a door appears out of nowhere rand doesn't describe how the door appeared out of nowhere because rand doesn't understand how the door appeared out of nowhere and yeah. i think that that is an interesting strategy and it's one that i think normally works really well and i struggle with it in this chapter in particular um i i remember being you know like i said like 12 or 13 and i have a vivid memory of reading the first third of this chapter three or four times trying to figure <laughs> out when that stupid door was first mentioned i was like mm. where did it come from there has to be an <laughs> earlier mention of the door he just broke it well and i you should correct me if i have this wrong but part of what's going on is we're seeing the convergence of the kind of mental plane with the physical plane so when we're seeing some of this kind of things happen it is often literally happening but it's also kind of figurative like so one more Harry Potter reference for the night, I swear. Uh, Dumbledore says uh, in their final conversation, Harry says, was this real or was it all happening in my head? And Dumbledore's beautiful, absolutely stunning response. Screw you, J.K. Rowling, for ruining these books for us in the, the present day. But the beautiful response is, of course, it's happening in your head. But why would that mean it's not real? And that was the kind of vibe I had a lot of this chapter, which um, is that it is it is a, a convergence of the mental. And so like you're saying, sometimes they're battling mentally, but it's actually affecting the physical world and vice versa. Ooh, the face Tyler is making, we, I wish we could capture. It's the face that says, I desperately want to help you understand this, Greg, but I don't know how to do so without spoiling something 10 I, books from now. <laughs> I think I can say this and it's not really a spoiler. Okay. Although it's maybe the tiniest bit of a spoiler. Apologies. I try to avoid these in general. <laughs> Everything that happens in this chapter happens literally in the world physically. Okay. But he does try to go to dreams. He kind of leans into the dreamlike state 
in yeah. order to go do something physically. And so, um, I mean, let's go right. back to my wheelhouse. It's Rise of Skywalker, right? It's it's having force visions that you can now pass a lightsaber between you and mm-hmm. rain and beads and whatever it is, yeah. right? Um, so so I think I I I I don't think you're correcting me. I think you're clarifying for yeah. me, but it, it's still to me exactly what I said it was in my mind. Yes, I agree. We are both <laughs> very smart and both very correct. That, that sounds like the right Good. answer. Uh, there's the end of the season. We're perfect. We can <laughs> close the book. Literally, uh, who cares about the last two chapters? We we arrived at that. Um, um, so yeah, as we it. start to get into the chapter, I'm curious your reaction to Agenor, right? Balthamel is clearly the red herring of the villain. He shows up. He's creepy. He can't talk. Let's kill that one. Um, so... Agenor shows up and we get a pretty good villain monologue out of this guy before anything else happens. Uh, Did that land for you? Did this develop the character at all? Or is he still just like faceless corpse of a character and not much else? Um, If I'm being honest, I would say still kind of faceless corpse to me. And I think that's more because my mind was in so much action mode. I'm kind of not processing the kind of character stuff. Um, The fact that we end this confrontation with him still standing means I'm sure we will be seeing him uh, again and and he'll continue to be a part of the story. Uh, But in your summary, you freshly reminded me that he is uh, scheming. He's political, right? He wants to find the route to the most power that means killing rand um so he's calculated in that sense which also just um you know we've had some hints of this before but to recognize that even if um the baalzaman is the center of the the dark side uh that there's more forces at play there and we i assume are going to eventually learn there's as complex a map of powers though different than the map of powers on the light side but um that neither side is completely unified i think is probably the most important takeaway i pulled out of that yeah i think there is that and then the other thing that i find interesting about kind of agonor's um kind of discussion is that he seems to assert that while the Dark One would prefer that Rand be brought to him alive, the Dark One is perfectly fine with Rand being dead, right? Agenor is like, look, if I kill you, then I don't have to share any power with you, and I get the reward for turning you in. And so I think that is an interesting moment, because every time we've seen a Dark Friend interact with Rand and the others, it's always been, come with me, come with me, come with me. This is the first character who's powerful enough to be like, eh, that's what he wants most, but I can just murder you. Um, That's intimidating and interesting from a character, because it looks like you have something to say. Well, I was going to go far out on a limb I don't deserve to go out on and correct you slightly that the one thing we have learned from Baalzaman in this regard is he can control the dead as well as the living, right? That's correct, yes. So, So while I think everything you just said is accurate to all the dark friends um that we do know from the other source from the the horse's mouth as it were that um that ultimately doesn't matter so to me that's that all aligned to me uh, i didn't Absolutely. even necessarily differentiate him it's like yeah because you know they they don't have these same distinctions um and what is agonor but a reminder of why that's true right he seems yeah. to be a, a, a you know motivated corpse so 
what what did you say uh horrifying uh something i don't remember remember anymore (laughs) there it goes it's not our tagline anymore so so i think in that regard um i was more interested in what he has to gain or lose by sharing power or not sharing power and just assumed well you know there's it probably goes without saying but then i also just assume none of that will happen right this is our hero so they can they can dream as much as they want but you know he's not gonna fall yeah and i think that this is what i was mentioning earlier right is you were talking about rand in the eye and his immediate reaction is to resist wanting to use that power and to pull away from it and i think that's an interesting contrast against the villainy villain speech that we get which Mm. is 100 percent why would I ever share power with anyone? You have it. I want it. I'm going to try to get it. And so yeah. I think that that is just, you know, we're, we're painting in, in black and white at this point, but what easier way to highlight how much of a hero Rand is than to show him rejecting power and then giving the villain a monologue about power. Um, the only thing that I have left in kind of the Agonor section of this chapter is the battle between the two of them, which is mostly described as Rand exerting effort and then occasional italicized phrases with exclamation points um i'm curious whether this worked for you at all or whether you had the same disdain that i sometimes do for whatever was going on (laughs) that rance didn't understand um again sticking to my star wars wheelhouse uh one of my favorite tiny moments in the force awakens is when um kylo pushes into ray's mind and ray pushes back and um the sound design is incredible in that moment because you hear this kind of low throbbing for the force that um is different when each character uses it and that's entirely where my mind was it's like we are entirely in our heads we are it's a battle of wills literally uh i guess and um that kind of push-pull dynamic was there. And um, as I just alluded to at the end of last chapter, it's like, well, the like pulling out your swords and clanging them together doesn't work for me in a book, so this is yeah. fine. And, okay. you know, it has the positives uh, and the negatives of like, well, I'm just waiting for you to tell me who won this one or or what have you. But um, yeah. but it was it was exciting and, and interesting, uh, certainly. Um, now, I wrote down in my books that it was... Um, Agenor who pushed Rand away but in your description I'm not so sure I captured that accurately we have the thought away and Rand is away but is it clear whose wish was to kind of break up that locked swords or locked minds uh I am looking for the spot in the chapter my recollection is that it is not given a specific name it is not it is its own paragraph it is just the italicized word away exclamation point so yeah i guess it could be interpreted in either way um Hmm. well and so the paragraph right before that is agonor focused so you know i think you could make the assumption that it is switched to Rand's point of view so it's a new paragraph but i think more than anything it's what you said which is that it's left a little ambiguous and we're not even positive uh who's who it is uh so uh you know it seems to me the the clear message when rand arrives at tarwin's gap is that he's leveled up right like he unlocked a new skill tree in this video game and um while he's not fully aware of those powers it seems to be uh the true power kind of power set from some of which we've seen with moraine earthquakes and and earth moving and so on um my not so eloquent note on this uh is just 
has tantrum comma has new powers um yep. and and i i think that's you know we're supposed to read it as just pure emotion and he's lashing out and and everything that he's just witnessed uh with his world crumbling around him uh just unlocks this deeper part of him um and then i think cuz it's wheel of time i just assume while it does feel like new set of powers, maybe these are actually really old sets of powers, right? That it's it's awakening whatever is uh, within him uh, that we've had recent hints of. Yeah, and I actually remember when I was reading this chapter, when I got to this section, I was really convinced it was one of two things that for some reason in my young age, I assumed were mutually exclusive. I don't think they actually are. I was convinced that either Rand was channeling the one power or that Rand, whatever his lineage was, was speaking through him in the same way that Manethrin had been speaking through um, uh, Perrin or Matt when they were speaking the old tongue. So I think I was thinking very much along the same lines that it sounds like you are. Um, the interesting question here is how is Rand actually able to do all of these things without in any way knowing what he's doing? And so as you're saying, it seems there is some sort of emotion driving this. And I think that that's just an interesting thing to note. We've never seen uh, Moraine as being especially emotional. It doesn't seem like the one power is in any way tied up with emotion. So something is happening here that is at least different from, as you say, literally everything Rand does is something Moraine has done earlier in the book with the one power, right? It's earthquakes, it's walls of fire, it's lightning bolts. We've seen all of those things, but there are some differences that make us, you know, potentially suspicious that that's the whole story. So I'm curious whether you have any more like hypothesizing on this or whether you were just kind of okay with he's doing something, I don't know what it is. Let's go. Um both uh yeah. like i mean definitely in the moment i was like let's just go like L lfg like let's just do this like let's let's go have the confrontation um you know i think you've been kind of waiting for that action and yeah. and for him to come into his own and and to be the the superhero or what have you um in thinking about it now and in being reminded through what you were just saying about you know how different this is than moraine i think my mind naturally goes to the two sides of the true power that he's acting out of Sidine and she is Sidar. Yep. Um, and then that regard, um, how kind of deliciously beautiful that it would be the man who has to get overly emotional um, in that, uh, you know, it goes against awful stereotypes and yet is probably true. Uh, you know, uh, I'm immediately thinking of Brett Kavanaugh, right? That he can <laughs> cry and, and use his emotion to, to harness his power in front of Congress. Whereas if, uh, his uh, probably absolutely correct accuser had done so, um, she would have never been listened to because that's what our society does to men and women. And, you know, I think uh, you've warned before that the gender roles are of their time in this book and limited in some ways and yet um, also progressive in some ways. And so, uh, you know, I all of that was kind of zipping through my mind in those moments of like, oh, I think that's probably the difference here is it's the two sides of the, the cookie. Um, and and, and we need to start mapping out what belongs on each side. And so emotion belongs on the male side, the Sidene. I just like saying that over and over again. Uh, I just read a book uh, that featured uh, the the uh, Spaldine, the, the rubber ball, you know, the oh, yeah. you play within the Bronx so uh, or in Brooklyn. Anyway, so the, all that's in my mind. I'm thinking about the Sidene. 
I have no comments on that completely accurate political commentary <laughs> slash forecast. That's uh, what people come here for is our hot takes on Supreme Court battles from the Trump era. <laughs> uh, I then actually I, I want to talk about the transition that we have between the battle at Tarwin's Gap and then um, the next section of the book, because at this moment, um, Rand has kind of destroyed many of the Trollocs, not all of them, but whatever he's been doing has, you know, kind of made it so the Shinarans at least have a chance. And then there is a voice in his head, and that voice in his head speaks in all caps. Um, the things that I jotted down that I noted it as saying were, it is not here. I will take no part. Only the chosen one can do what must be done if he will not hear. And mm. the all caps voice seems to be at least in some way distinguished from all of the italicized thoughts or action text or such. And so I was curious whether the all caps voice stood out to you, whether you had any theories about what it was or what that text kind of signified. Um, this is something of a mystery. And I will say, I don't think there is necessarily a known answer. This isn't a no spoiler situation. This is a, I don't know what the spoiler would be situation. So do you have <laughs> any theory about this? That's really funny because uh, I'm going to give my answer that was forming as you asked the question before you gave that second piece of information. And I was going to say, that sounds like book two to me, um, right? It <laughs> sounds like in, uh, you know, you get the voice of Obi-Wan before you get the ghost of Obi-Wan, right? Yeah. And so it felt to me like that's like a little preview that there's there's more to say here. Um, uh, so... Fair enough. Good question. Uh, that that is perhaps unanswerable, but I will just land on. It sounds like a higher power, and it would be a mentor style figure um, that would uh, be, uh, you know, some kind of super Sedai or some kind of old god that that would be the one to lead Rand uh, further. Um, it, you know, I think in the crunch of just getting into this action, it didn't stand out to me that much um because there's so much chaos in these yeah, <laughs> these totally. uh pages in particular like especially as you get towards the end of this there's so much going on i think i kind of probably glossed it as this is just um you know Baalzaman or or rand or somebody actually yeah. there not some higher power yeah and and once we get through there he finds a door out of nowhere much to the dismay of my childhood self <laughs> um and then as he enters, uh, he is in the room from his dreams, right? It is, you know, seemingly the warped shapes and, you know, warped dimensions. And I think this is really interesting because I, at least, had no idea that there would be a confrontation with Beelzeman at the mm. end of this book, right? I was not expecting this at all. In particular, not expecting a confrontation with Beelzeman that seems to end at least to some degree in a victory for Rand, right? He may not have defeated or killed or done whatever, but I don't know what cutting cords does, but it seems like it's bad for the person whose cord is cut and <laughs> Rand is able to do it to Beelzeman. Um, So I was curious what your reaction was to getting this kind of a confrontation at the end of book one of a series that you obviously know doesn't end after one book uh 
Harry Potter night continues. Um, Harry Potter confronts Voldemort at the end of the first book, right? And it is a version, a shade, a shadow of Voldemort. Um, and I think that's the kind of feeling I got here, yeah. that I didn't think this could be the epochal ending confrontation. I think this is, you know, whether it's because they're on a dream plane, whether it's because, you know, it's it's a lesser version of him. Um, it certainly didn't seem like it was, you know, possible to end this struggle for all the reasons that you're just saying about knowing this is the first book in a series and all that. Uh, I will also say it was definitely the chords that made me think of Priori Incantatum and all those uh, yeah. kind of spell things. It was it was hard to picture. But then I started just feeling really dang good about myself because last time I talked about how uh, the sword had been called out by the green man and that the green man was surprised that the sword was there. And I said, whatever is happening, the thing that will make the difference now is the sword. The sword is what is, yep. is edging them. You could, if we had an editor, we would drop in the sound clip of me being so smart last time and saying that, which is completely an example of like, like you said, Robert Jordan giving you the last clue at the moment when yep. you can feel really good. So so I am full of myself while acknowledging that I have no good reason to be that proud of that prediction. And so the fact that it was the sword that was able to cut the cords, um, and I interpreted it as the literal Heron Mark sword, which in this heightened reality became the sword of light that could cut these um, and I assume that has something to do with where the blade comes from, but also the fact that it's Rand wielding it. Uh, visually, uh, I, I know I've mentioned before, I'm horribly addicted to Marvel Snap. And when you play Cyclops or Vision, the card just has a laser beam shooting out of it in a really satisfying way as you play yep. the card, uh, as you move the card even, not even before you play it. It's just as you adjust it. And it just immediately brought to mind that. I'm like, oh yeah, this is Vision uh, with the heat beam out of his forehead. That's that's the kind of light sword situation we're dealing with. Yeah, I, I do actually want to note very interestingly, um, the uh, sword is actually introduced as not the Heronmark blade, oh. comma, but a blade of light. Mm. Um, the interesting thing to me about this sword is that it it does, it symbolizes Rand, I think, to some degree, choosing his path forward, right? Like, he is going into this not with whatever his past was, but with the sword, right? Because if you think about what the green man said, the sword was the oddity. It was the thing that he didn't expect about this character from whatever background he had. And so I think it's very interesting that in the moment where Rand is clearly like subconsciously choosing a weapon or, you know, something, he's choosing the sword. And as you say, I think that's both symbolic and literally important for a variety of reasons. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, right before he wields the sword, actually, he is confronted, however, with an image of a number of important women in his life, right? Egwene and Nynaeve are there, but I think most interestingly, uh, Beelzeman shows him a vision of his own mother um, mm. as a way of trying to either tempt him or sway him or, you know, distract him, whatever Baalzaman was trying to do. I was curious your reaction to that, because I don't think it's uh, something we've seen before. And, you know, Rand is obviously in an interesting position with his, you know, heritage and figuring out where he came from. And so this this vision of the mother, I think, is really interesting placed at, at the point in the story that we get it. Um, I was very much in Rand's head at that moment and in that action. And he just 
dismisses it immediately as a distraction, right? He's not fooled at all that those women could really be there. Um, and, you know, the fact that it is all the women in the context of the black and white cookie is like, okay, is, is this trying to balance that out? I think in the moment it felt more patriarchal, right? Like the yeah. women are, this is what's at stake. Like I'm going to take the the women out of your life, the vulnerable women. Um, and so uh, that's the threat and, and motivates uh, or tries to get Rand to stop and not touch them. So um, I think I didn't find a larger resonance until kind of this conversation tonight has reminded me how important the balance of the, the Sidene, there it is again, and the Sidar is. Uh, so uh, it's kind of curious that that is what he would reach out with. Now, as a figure of darkness, I would assume he has total disdain for women and all his lieutenants seem to be men and so on. But uh, I don't think that's a complete picture yet in my mind. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting, you say Rand kind of immediately dismisses this. He's like, obviously, this is like an illusion. It's not real. And Beelzeman's reaction is to get rid of the images of Egwene and Nynaeve and to say, I don't have anything to do with them, but I actually have influence over her and mm. you know his mother because she is dead. He's the prince of death or whatever. And I thought that was a really interesting moment where Rand continues to deny, but you can tell after that it's a little bit of a kind of weaker denial until suddenly he has the sort of light in his hand. And I think that that was an interesting moment for me of showing kind of Rand's kind of last temptation, if you will. Mm. Right? That's the thing that almost causes him to step back until we get the final moment of him drawing the sword. So um, I think it's a it's a fairly well-drawn moment, but um, this is also a section that I think gets lost a little bit in, there's so much action in this, in this chapter. There's only a page and a half for the dream room yeah. Beelzeman sequence. That's kind of all I have in this. Was there anything that stood out to you about the confrontation at the end of the chapter? Um, I just want to note, um, especially in the context of this gender dynamics uh, and always questioning what's going on, just the imagery of cutting a cord is obviously very steeped. And we've used that phrase, cut the cord. Um, and how do we use that in our modern kind of parlance is cut the cord, let your child like take care of themselves and you know especially with a male child like let them be a man and and you know cut the cord and blah 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 and while that's all uh, you know toxic in some ways i think there is a way in which cutting of the cord severs it this is in our larger society severs the balance of gender power right yeah. that the cord is the mother giving life to the child and especially a mother and son it's like whatever kind of i mean it, it also feels a little yin yang right that it's it's like a, a bit of the female in the male um now in this sorry god siri again <laughs> sorry uh, the, listeners know i'm in my freezing cold basement so every chance i get i'm like hugging myself and i keep bopping my watch is what is triggering that tonight i'll, I'll remember to take it off in the future um so I think in the context of this, we have the figure of darkness tied to a dark cord and a figure of light tied to a light cord. So it's not really that same kind of balancey idea, but the idea that you are tied to a larger power by this cord. And if that is not the core, the power keeping you alive, it's the power letting you be at this confrontation, it seems. So the severing of the cord 
by Rand on Beelzebub feels like, um, you know, I think it's presented kind of as a slaying, but it it doesn't feel to me like it is, uh, it is killing him. It's removing his ability to be at this confrontation. Whatever is yeah. channeling them to this dream space room, um, that severing just you know, uh, it's kind of like unplugging somebody from the matrix, right? Kind of that yeah. type of thing. Yeah, the image that I had was Inception, right? It felt like mm. the cord got cut and immediately the dream started falling apart in the same way that it happens in that movie. Um, and I thought, you know, it was fairly well drawn in a chapter where we don't get a lot of visuals that are easy to picture. I felt like that was one moment that actually lived up to it. It's only a couple of paragraphs, but I at least felt like I understood what was happening as that kind of dreamscape collapsed. Um that brings me to the end of what I've got. Last notes on the chapter, Greg? Uh, shut up so I can go up and read these last 15 pages. I've been <laughs> waiting. I've been waiting for a week. And, uh, you know, we've joked before. There's always a little temptation for me to read ahead. But the shtick of the podcast is I am only as current as the two chapters. Uh, this was the only time I really honestly considered lying to you because it just it was fulfilling to get this big confrontation and to kind of reach as as you had warned. This is kind of the emotional climax of the book, the the heightened climax. But to only know there's two chapters and 15 pages left, I was like, I just want to like I could lie to him. Like, well, I, I I can fake it. I can pretend I have it. You know, they they always talk about how couples watching TV shows always cheat on each other in the TV show, and it felt very much like that. Like I could just watch the next episode and then I'll be just as surprised when we sit down to watch it together. I can fake it. Um, so I did not. I want the merit badge for having not cheated, but my real merit badge is to get to to go upstairs. So um if you are following along uh, on day and date, uh, we have already uh, with this episode dropped the second. So uh, past Tyler and Greg are talking to you from when we haven't recorded or read that, but you don't have to wait any further. You can immediately roll into those two next chapters and download uh, our final episode of the eye of the world, which is chapter 52. There is neither beginning nor end and chapter 53, the wheel turns. Uh, and so we are so excited to close it out. Perhaps me more than Tyler, just by nature of the fact he knows what's in these chapters. Uh, and so I'm going to toss it over to you, Tyler, to, to close it out and say goodbye to the fine folks. Yeah, I think that what's really exciting to me is that we get to do even more weird timey-wimey stuff because I am about to pitch to you a week in the future and also simultaneously at exactly the same time. So get excited. It's the last two chapters of this book. When you have a title or a chapter with a title as good as there is neither beginning nor end, you've got to get at least a little bit excited. Um, and so just a quick reminder about programming, even though you're going to hear it again in an hour if you're you're listening to these back to back uh, we are going to be dropping both of these at the same time and then we are going to be taking a winter break and the next episode that you're going to be hearing after the break will be on january 11th when we'll be talking about the prologue and chapter one of the great hunt but until then we have two more chapters to do and they're pretty good ones so i look <laughs> forward to seeing you next week both in someone's head other than rand finallys <laughs> and also through the glass columns so ends another episode of through the glass columns we thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the wheel of time in our own sweet time 
This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.